Welcome to the Molding Health Show. Our goal is to leverage the wisdom and experience of healthcare practitioners to set you on a path of self-discovery and healing. These insights, coupled with a multidisciplinary approach to each area of interest, should provide an invaluable resource to everyone looking for a better approach to health. In this episode of the show, we speak to Tania Gaidin about pediatric palliative care from a speech therapist perspective. Tania Kadian, uh, welcome to the show. So we're so glad to have you on board and talking about pediatric palliative care. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, no, thanks for thanks so much for accepting our invite and, and talking about an amazing topic. And, and I was telling you just before the show, we're so blessed to meet amazing practitioners like yourself and dispel lots of the things that we didn't even know what to ask for. So uh, thanks so much for doing this. And um, I'm not I'm not even going to try to introduce the topic, so I'm just going to let you do it. <laughs> Can you tell us what uh, pediatric palliative care is? Sure, yeah. I think a lot of health professionals don't even really know what it is. So palliative care is basically um, when you have a life-limiting or a life-threatening illness, um, it's the care we provide that optimizes quality of life, comfort. Um, it's not, it doesn't um, hasten death. It's more just to support the entire family structure. So it looks a lot at treating not only a patient, but the entire family unit, anybody that's affected by this disease, any disease that is palliative, um, so life-limiting or life-threatening, we treat all of them. Um, it's quite a, a, a like fairly recent um, concept, specifically uh, in South Africa. Um, very few practitioners are adequately trained and more specifically so in pediatrics and even more specifically so in speech therapy. Um, so it's quite, it's big, they, they're working towards creating it into like a subspecialty or something because um, there's a lot of people working with palliation but don't actually know what they're doing. Um, so pediatric palliative care is looking specifically at children suffering from life-limiting or life-threatening diseases. So like your life-threatening diseases are things like cancers, um, uh, birth traumas, traumatic brain injuries. Um, your life-threatening illnesses can be like cerebral palsy, um, a, like a severe stroke, um, Parkinson's. So those are they 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 are life limiting, but you might not experience death as fast. And the the big sort of misunderstanding when it comes to palliative care is that we come in just before these patients die. Like they love to refer patients to us for palliative care in like the last two weeks of life. And palliative care is supposed to start at the point of diagnosis. So when a patient is diagnosed with whatever they were diagnosed the palliative team has to come in and start treatment. And the what it does is it allows the family, specifically in pediatrics, to understand what's going to happen. To not be surprised by these. It's a very, very difficult um, experience losing a child and having a child being diagnosed with a life-threatening or life-limiting illness. So it's really important that they're given adequate support, counseling, training, and really just empowering families and by, by families, we mean not only mom and dad, but siblings, grandparents, anyone who's in this child's nucleus, fam, nucle nucleus um, family, we want to empower them and teach them what to do and what to expect. 
So there's a lot that goes into it. Um, but the, the the biggest thing is that it really starts at the point of diagnosis and it ends at bereavement. So not at the death. We don't stop palliative care when the patient dies. We stop it after the family has um, kind of settled into their grief because grief is also a process. So mm. we first provide bereavement support to the families um, and we grieve alongside them differently, but alongside them. And then we kind of discontinue care. But um, that that is kind of your timeline of care. Um, and it's, it's amazing work. It's difficult work. And it's things that a lot of people don't understand and don't know how to do. But when it's done properly, it can really change a family's life so much. There is definitely such a thing as a good death. And we strive to give patients that, to give them a good death and to advocate for a good death especially for a child that can't advocate for themselves. Um, and what a lot of people don't understand, you know, especially as I think as a parent, you know, you can't think about a good death. You don't want your child to die. So it needs to be, somebody needs to do that. Somebody needs to make sure that there's a, there's a, a peaceful death because we've seen difficult, traumatic, painful, de painful deaths. And that leads to very, very complicated grief and trauma with parents when they've experienced that. So, um, yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, that's, that's pediatric palliative care. That is so powerful. Hey? And I'm so glad you said it. Uh, I mean, I can hear in your voice, the passion you have for it as well. And yeah. I mean, there's so many different ways I can take this conversation, but and, uh, the first thing I do want to say, and it's, probably the most obvious is, is I would have never guessed the speech therapist with that level of care. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, psychologist maybe. So I'd love to unpack that just now. Um, and I do want to say, sure, that must be really difficult to be able to, you know, to firstly, to be in that space. Because I'm just thinking, you know, like telling a child, I mean, does a child actually understand, you know, that they're going to die and, you know, getting them prepared for this? Because I mean, those children are so you know, joyful and they, they're looking forward to every single day and they probably can't see themselves dying it's, soon. Yeah. yeah, that's a very interesting thing you say because that is one of the big things that I think parents struggle with and um, other clinicians, families, you know, this concept of like, but kids won't understand death. And um, I, for my for my project, for my, my postgrad diploma, I did it on questions kids have asked me about death. And it's kids who are from four would ask me things like, where am I going? Um, what's going to happen? What is it going to feel like? Very profound questions. And mm -hmm. what I learned through doing that was that these kids know, they understand, and all they want is answers. And they often children and their parents live in this state of mutual pretense where the child knows they're going to die, the parents know they're going to die, but nobody's talking to each other. And sometimes all the kid wants is to know that their parents are going to be okay and their brother or their sister's going to be okay and that they will be okay and that what to expect. You know, they, they, they have questions and we try to protect them but it's more how do we speak to them. The way I'm going to talk about death with a four-year-old is going to be very different to how I talk about death with a 10-year-old. But I'm still going to talk about death. And I'm still going to allow them a place to talk about it. The child, who's the, 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 the patient, the siblings, the cousins, anyone who needs it. We're going to open those conversations because otherwise 
you can one have regrets. Where often parents, you know, they wish that they had told the, their kids that, you know, they realize in retrospect that their child did know, you know, so you want to avoid that. You want to open conversations that maybe is too difficult for parents to do. We support that. I think you muted. That, that is that is amazing. Sorry, I was uh, slightly muted there. But um, it it reminds. I mean, I recently we had another conversation with a practitioner out of New Zealand, and he was talking about prediction psychology and how the brain, you know, when it's formed, it almost knows everything, and it kind of validates its cases. And I think what you're saying now, it's like we would have never guessed that you know, like um, the children have that level of consciousness, but. The, but as you're saying now, they, they do, and you know, they do know something is wrong. And it's like mm -hmm. everything. I mean, like, you know, everyone says this, I mean, children pick up, you know, you don't have to tell them, but they know if like, for instance, the parents are upset with each other, they know that something is going to happen. They know if there's danger in the house, you know, mm -hmm. they, you don't have to tell them that they, they seem to pick that up. So I think with, yeah. And I think even children, um, I, I mean, I work with adult palliative patients as well, and I'll, counsel their kids you know who's losing a parent as well and see how they're coping and understanding and you know it's different than when the child actually has the disease because it's their body and I feel that they then have a right at a certain age they have a right to know what's going on with their body it can be very confusing when you feel sick you're on all these medications you know you you're not quite sure what's happening it's a scary thing and and it comes from a place of love from parents of wanting to protect your child but it's very confusing for a child who doesn't know why their body's not behaving and they just want to understand it and also probably being in hospital all the time you know and going to hospital and they see other children around them not going to a hospital i mean that must be <laughs> there's already like the hints that something is not right with me Exactly. Okay. Um, very, very, very powerful. Um, and I'm going to guess this, but I would like you to validate it. <laughs> but I'm assuming that a speech therapist gets involved because it's from a communication point of view. Is that the reason? I mean, I think one one thing that I learned over many, many episodes is that one of the one of the things I probably misunderstood the most was probably speech therapists. Is like mm -hmm. you know what speech therapists do and how they help with that communication. is Am, am I quite close to it? Why um, would a speech therapist close. get involved in it? It's part. So, I mean, a speech therapist works in, um, I would think, four or five main domains. We work in communication, feeding and swallowing, cognition, counseling relating to these difficulties, and what am I missing? Language, communication, feeding, cognition, and um uh, augmented devices, so like communicating through non-verbal speech. Um, so in palliative care, we do work a lot in communication. So what I do is I um, consult for Reach for Dream, and Reach for Dream is what gives um, kids, you know, when they on when they've been diagnosed with a palliative illness and they get a, a wish and they can have anything. But a lot of these kids can't communicate their wish so they could not sometimes they have muscle issues and they they've got weakness or it can be because um they now are too stiff to move their jaw or it can be that they had a stroke and they have word finding difficulties lots of different reasons but what we found is that they actually can't so they didn't know what if they were giving these kids what they wanted or what they didn't and then simple things like um final words 
uh, kids aren't able to have the, those final words with their parents to tell them simple things like they love them or that they're okay. Um, so we would develop, um, basically I do an assessment to see how, how, what is this child's cognition like? What is this child's range of movement like? Can I use pointing? What can I use to support their communication? Um, what is their language like? Do they understand words? Do they understand sentences? Do they understand objects or pictures? Like what is in my toolkit to help them get their message out? And then from that, I develop some sort of, if it's going to be a like a picture or am I going to let them write or am I going to let them point at objects like depending you know seeing what this this child can do I help them to get their message out and then we also have to make sure that we're getting their communication partners messages in so going to speak to a child that has communication difficulties and remembering that their child so they probably have developmental delays as well now because they've been in and out of hospital um we're not going to go and speak in full, long sentences, fat conversations with lots of distractors. We might have to reduce the amount of distractions that there are, limit the amount of words in a sentence, use lots of gesture to help them understand. Make sure we're speaking to them in their home language that's easier for them. Um, like a lot of times I need to get translators or translate material to make it easier for them because we're not going to make things, we're only going to make it more difficult. Um, and so then what I do is I often then will teach the family how to use this tool or, you know, whatever communication board or anything that we've developed, how to now use it with them to communicate. Some parents want to use it so they can pray with their children. Sometimes they do it so that they can get basic needs from their kids, especially, you know, we, we we think that because parents know their kids better than anybody, their child's going to cry and they're going to know what their child wants. Their child's going to walk into the walk and stand in front of the fridge. They know the child wants juice. Mm. But what we mustn't forget is that when we take the voice away, we take away their identity, we take away their autonomy, even though we know what they want. And a child that was maybe previously well and now has been diagnosed and isn't as independent as before, your 10, 11, 12-year-olds, they've lost the sense of self and they want to feel even a little bit independent. So we always encourage allowing the children to communicate what they want to do. They want to watch TV. They want to draw anything that they want to do. We look at how can we adapt um, how the parents are being, the, how we can adapt the, the communication partnership so that they can support this child's autonomy and independence as well. Um, and then what I also do is when we're kind of developing the dream that the child wants, a lot of times it's things that they maybe can't do that they could do before. Like they liked painting and now they can't. And then we look at how can we adapt the activity that they're looking for for them to do now so like I had a child who loved to draw and we got her finger paint and big like eight two pieces of paper so we could sit on the floor and she could finger paint and so sometimes there's a lot of creativity but we sit and we try to think okay how can we adapt what you previously enjoyed and bring you that joy now because that's what palliative care is um I would say maybe 80 percent of what I do is the feeding and swallowing mm that is the most of what I do. Um, so that's in terms of swallow safety. So um, most, if if you have a, a, any sort of illness and you're struggling with your swallow and it goes into the wrong pipe and it's continuously going into the wrong pipe, it's going into your lungs. Mm. If food is constantly going into your lungs, you'll develop a pneumonia. Mm. These children can't fight off 
pneumonias. They don't know how their bodies can't fight that. So what often happens is these kids get put on non-oral feeding like nasogastric tubes, G-tubes, um, uh, uh, TPNs, you know, things like that. But there is no pleasure in that. And eating is more than just for nutrition. It's for pleasure. Mm. It's a pleasurable and social experience. And so what our goal, what our and what I'm advocating a lot for lately and trying to do as much research as I can to kind of really get this message out is that a lot of people think that they're saving this kid's life by putting in an NGT or putting in some like a, a G-tube or any sort of bit, but we are actually more likely like prolonging this death process because we're pushing feeds all the time when this child's body is maybe ready to let go and the child emotionally is ready to let go and we are keeping this child alive and it's we're fighting against the body and often the body can't the kidneys can't handle all this fluids we're pushing a body enters a state of ketosis which is a, one of the most peaceful ways to die so we should support it then the other end is that there's nothing pleasurable from NGT feeds. They feel full, but that's all. And I, I've had so many kids who I've gone with Reach for a Dream to do these like wishes with them. And I'm asked anything, anything in the world, what do you want? And this one child told me uh, a milkshake. She had a, a tube in and all she wanted in the whole world was a milkshake. So I said, to her, I will get you a milkshake. And then what we do as speech therapists is we weigh risk versus benefit. And we see how can I get you what you want to eat in the safest way possible that you don't die of a pneumonia. Because I don't want the child to die of a pneumonia. But I also want you to get the pleasure that you deserve. So we do... I'll go and assess what consistencies can this child tolerate? What positions are going to support the safety? Um, how can I... what um, like eating tools, can we use a straw versus a cup versus a syringe to make sure that you can get what you what you want? And then we do diet modification, um, we use different utensils, positioning, all of that to kind of lower their risk as far as possible, but up their comfort and their quality of life as far as we can. And that's so motivating and joyful. And these kids are so happy when they get something so small, like a sweet or a chocolate. And so we kind of, we and then we have to monitor, then we have to kind of make sure that the child's not developing a pneumonia. How do we, we, we constantly make sure, and I always tell parents that I carry that risk. I want them to enjoy their child. I want them to enjoy the social experience of eating with their child. And I carry the risk. And when I feel that something is getting too risky and we need to make a change, but normally I, I usually start very early on in the process saying that things are going to get more difficult. We might have to change the diet as it goes along. So by the time that happens, it's not a shock for them. They're usually aware that we're going to have to change um, as it comes. But that's what I spend. That and counseling, I feel like, is most of um, what I do because a lot of parents and all family members struggle a lot with withdrawal of feeds because they, especially when a patient loses their appetite, which happens towards the end of life, um, they feel like they need to do something, you know, my loved one's hungry, I'm letting them starve, but they aren't, they're very comfortable. If they're telling you they're not hungry, they aren't. And what they actually need is someone to explain that to them early on in the process so that when that happens, we're saying, remember that thing we spoke about, that's what's starting to happen. Let's sit with them, let's be with them, 
we can give them a little bit of water, which gives families a little bit of peace of mind to give something. Um, but none of it is a shock because they've known from the get-go. And that's why we start at the point of diagnosis. So that by the time we get there, it's moving. And it's a very long answer. <laughs> mm, no, it's a, it's a but, brilliant answer again. I mean, uh, I'm just in awe as you speak, actually, to be honest. Because I, I get I get the sense of like you you're actually very um, and uh, and I'm trying to find the best word you know to articulate it, but very like knowing very very wise about how you're thinking about it. Even when you said you know the body wants to let go, and it's something I would have thought you know like I, I would have you know, I would definitely advocate for, but it seems to be against you know the grain of thought you know or thinking with most people they want to prolong that. But I, I love that. And did that always come? I mean, did you always have that? Or did you develop that? Um, no. you know, they, <laughs> sorry, they say but most, some people are like old souls, you know, like they always have yeah. this thing. Do you, do you see yourself as one of those people? Um, I think palliative care definitely called to me. I don't think, I, I, I think you have to have a certain personality trait that brings you to palliative care, a certain part of yourself. And I've, I, my grandmother passed away from cancer and we we honestly had the most amazing experience. Um, and it was very eye-opening. I was only studying at the time, but it, watching how they, all this care that they gave us as like grandchildren. And it was just very eye-opening for me. And um, I've always been an an advocate for for the voiceless. I've always felt like an advocate, and it's and I've been volunteering for like um, the cancer organizations and stuff since I was in high school. So I, I think I've always been drawn to it without even really realizing it. And then in my community service year, I started working in palliation without even realizing it, and I had, um, like oncologists and things kind of like training me because I didn't know where to go for support. I didn't know who to ask for help because I don't, there's no one really who knows, um, especially as a speech therapist. And so I kind of made it my mission to learn as much as I can, to know medically what's happening, psychosocially what's happening, what does a child understand, what does a 10-year-old, what does a five-year-old, what does a three-year-old understand, what, you know, I wanted to understand every component to know how best to support. And so that I know when I'm advocating for this child, I know what I'm talking about. And when I'm talking to a doctor and I'm saying that I don't think this is supporting this child, I know that I've got the theory to back myself up. So, I mean... I've done a lot of work to make sure that I've got all of these, the, the information. Um, I don't think I, I definitely didn't learn it in varsity, 100% not. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't learn it there. Mm. But I, I do think that I've always had um, an attachment to it. I, and I, I know it, it sounds, people often think it's dark yes. to, to work with dying people. But I I think it's a beautiful thing when you can support a family through something so difficult. And I've always had the most amazing experiences. I've gone to memorial services. I've gone to funerals. I've gotten beautiful messages from families. I've sat with families while the loved one died. And it's it's not that it doesn't knock you. I mean, I've gone through burnout more times than I can count. But mm-hmm. um it's worth it for me. And I feel the, the, the meaning in my life. Like I, I feel like I'm doing something very, very meaningful. Um, so like my, my big purpose right now is to 
train more speech therapists to be able to advocate with knowledge. Um, yeah. Okay. That, that is amazing. I think you on an amazing part that I think also you, you know, you, yeah. I, I mean, I think finding speech therapists that are going to be as passionate as you are about the, about working in palliative care is going to be, I would say not your mainstream aspect, but I know yeah. when, when I spoke to you, it was uh, Beanie Otto was a, she's a psychologist, but we spoke about disenfranchised grief as an example, you know, which you kind of touched on just now uh, without saying those words, but you know, she, we were talking about death and we were talking about grieving and, and it's the one certainty in life, but no one speaks about it. You know, like as, as parents, we don't talk to our children about it. You know, children don't want to talk to their parents about it. I'm talking about it in a normal setting yes. in a way where there isn't a life threatening disease. And it's almost mm. like this taboo subject until it happens. And we're not even prepared for it. And then when it does happen, there's all of these like unanswered things and 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 stuff like that. Um, I mean, that's which, as an adult, like us as adults, when our parents die, it's a shock and we don't know what to do and we don't want to talk about it. And that's normal. It's normal to lose an adult. It's not normal to lose a child. Nobody expects a child to die. So that's, you know, even less prepared, even less taboo over this, like this child who's got a life-threatening disease, but we don't want to talk about the the death. The, the, the concept of disenfranchised grief is a massive topic in, in palliative care. Okay. That's uh, so glad for mentioning that. Yeah. I mean, uh, the first time I heard about it as well, and, and uh, Beanie's words were exactly what you just said now. You know, most people think of her as weird and dark and, and stuff like that, but she says, you know, it's actually very rewarding working with that type of work because you are getting very real. I mean, the people, that, I mean, like your patients don't have too much of time, you know, so they, they you know, you are getting the true substance of what they're thinking about and, and stuff like that. There's something profound about that. Um, and I find these kids to be so, they, they, like you said, they, they, their thinking is so profound and about their years and the things they're thinking, sometimes I'm like, what how can I mean I had this one child again with Rich for Dream I made him a board and asked him he was I think six I asked him you can have anything what do you want and he spelled out for me see God and I was like oh, this little kid that's all you want you know you see so at peace you can see a child like that is at peace and he knows what's gonna happen and he's okay with it and it was very I mean I, I got into my car and cried mm. but it <laughs> but mm. it was it's also it brings parents peace to know it, it's painful, but you know that it's a, it's a good thing. Mm. Actually, just gave me goosebumps now just thinking about <laughs> that <laughs> because yeah, I mean I think for adults, I mean we struggle with that concept so much because we're constantly on this treadmill and you're constantly just doing stuff, you know, like all the time. And you know, everyone tells you you need to be, you know, have mindfulness practices. You have to do this. You have to make time for this. And it's interesting how. When you when you're forced to, then you make that time. You know, when you're forced to, you'll go and see wh whoever, wherever, you know, at whatever cost at that time. But every other time, it's not. And I think, yeah. But seeing people in that that state must must be amazing for you as a person. But uh, make no mistake. I mean, I'm sure it's really difficult. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> I mean, I would never be able to do it. In that constant yeah. scenario, I mean, but uh, yeah, <laughs> complete hats off for that. 
you know, I think also, I mean, something that we talk a lot about within the palliative care community is um, the concept of self-care and being aware of like your triggers and um, your... Uh, you, when you're reaching burnout, what to do. Um, and an interesting concept is also compassion fatigue. When you work in a profession like ours, you develop compassion fatigue mm. where you actually, you, and, and that is my big trigger that I've learned, mm. is if I don't care anymore, if a child dies and I don't feel sad, then I know I'm burnt out. Mm. Um, and I often have people ask me like, you know, don't you just get like you don't care anymore? And I'm like, when I do, that's burnout. Like a lot of doctors have that and don't, like who work, outside of palliative care, those are the ones that live in a state of burnout and they just stop caring. They lose patients and it's like, whatever. Um, but that's not normal. That That is you reaching a breakdown. Um, and I think because we know how difficult the work is, people, the health professionals who work in palliative care are very conscious of it. And we've, we, I mean, I just came from a palliative care conference for a week. It was the best time ever. It was the first time I've been around people who all feel the same way I feel. It was lovely. Um, and we had like whole mornings, like there was one morning we did like grief yoga and a morning we did mindfulness training and self-care. And, you know, it was all about also taking care of yourself as a health professional. So I think honestly, in the different spheres of health, we are the ones who are the most conscious of our mental health. Mm, yeah. I like that. Hey, I mean, I, I really like hearing you speak. Actually, you speak. You you quite. I think some of the things most people don't even talk about. I mean, like what you said with the doctors. I don't think I've ever heard that. But as you as I hear you speaking, that actually makes a lot of sense because that's not normal. You know, if you lose someone on the operating table, and and I suppose on the one sense, you know, you almost get the feeling that doctors are, um, you know, obviously they'll they'll feel it, but in their own time or so. But if you can't see it as well straight away, you know, I think that that would be difficult, you know, and and as you said, probably a case for burnout. But I haven't heard someone say it like that, which is very cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and, and now I'm kind of tying it together, you know, the feeding and swallowing, because we had, um, you know, speech therapists and audiologists uh, on um, Kerry Cool talking about the tracheostomy. And I thought, okay, cool. You know, that I didn't, I didn't understand that as well initially, but now I'm kind of starting to, you know, get a picture of where that kind of fits in. And she said the same thing. She said the simplest thing, like a, like a sip of of yogurt, or uh, was like mine. You know, was was like life altering for them, because you know, for two weeks. I mean, in your case, it's even worse because it's longer. But you know, even in that case, you know, being for weeks on end, just drinking, you know, um, yeah, just uh, um, fluid foods, you know, um, or getting sustenance from that was, I mean, it's just nothing. But That's getting not that, worse. yeah. Let's get referrals and they're giving, they're blending all their food. Oh, I want to die. I'm like, you can't. <laughs> That's who wants to eat that? Now, I also, and then these patients lose all this weight and they're like, they're not eating. And I'm like, I'm not going to eat mints in a blender that you're going to, that's gross. Like, mm. Else, you know, there's always sometimes I really have to sit and be like, How do I make like I had a patient who said all they wanted was chicken on a bone? I'm like, You're really making this very hard for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> let me think how I can make this safe for you to eat because mm. nobody's gonna want to eat like when they know that they're not well, they know mm. that this is a difficult journey, and I'm giving you pureed mints and pureed everything. Like, no one's gonna want to eat that, you yeah. know. 
otherwise. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for saying that. I mean, like that. I mean, I didn't even think of that, but yeah, that that is exactly what people do when people are sick. That that's what they, you know, that's what they sneak into hospitals and you know if they're not allowed to give it and all of those things. And you catch uh, them eating these things in the corner because you're forcing them to eat. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, and um, Tanya, t- tell me, in terms of the other practitioners that you work with, is there specific ones? Because uh, I heard you lot mention lots of the you know doing stuff. So, I mean, I'm guessing maybe an OT as well at some point, or does that come up? Yes. So we work um, very much within a team. It's really lovely. Um, we are considered a secondary team. So um, we are the, the specialized team. So there's a primary team will be like the doctors, everyone that's kind of treating this patient like in a hospital setting perhaps. Um, and they are just like your general, like a general pediatrician or, you know, they working in the, the primary nucleus. Then you have your secondary team, which is you can have like a secondary pain team with a secondary palliative team. So um, I work with like uh, palliative pediatricians. I work with social workers. I work a lot, a lot with physio, especially with feeding. Physio is... A massive help to us because when we have patients that are just not tolerating, they can suction, they can do chest physio. So, like, we work a lot, a lot with physio. We do work with occupational therapists also. Um, they do a lot, they help a lot to adjust patients' activities of daily living so they can still engage um, as far as possible. So, like, how I'm adapting their food, they'd adapt the um, movement and the environment so they can still engage in daily activities, which is lovely and motivating and helps with their mental health. We work with counselors, psychologists. Um, Something interesting that we also work with is music therapists and aromatherapists. I love that. So when I, when I learned about that, especially with the peds, it's just insane. The kind of um, memory making that can come with music therapy, where they like record these things for parents to keep forever. Um, and what's nice about the aromatherapy is that it actually um, supports more than just the child. They sometimes do it with the parents who've been sitting at the bedside for days and days and days. To just And I know the aromatherapist will always tell me that they fall asleep on the on the bed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's it's so nice when you actually think of how big the team can, can, can really be and the kind of support that you can provide for this um, for this child so the team is quite I feel like it's large and it's also ever-growing um, mm. is I learned recently about uh, they call themselves soul carers um, and they are like volunteer counselors that they don't call them patients or clients they call them friends and they basically sit with you if you don't want to be alone they support you. They paint your nails. They do your hair. They, you know, they they be with you, and it's such a nice concept. I've seen a few at the hospital here, and a few of my patients also have some soul cares, and it's just such a nice concept, you know. So uh, you see awareness happening around um, palliative care. Active, it's actively happening, but it's slow, um, and yeah lots of funding issues and things when it comes to palliative care but um it's the, the team is large and i think it's constantly growing as awareness grows mm. yeah i mean as uh, some of those i mean uh, the soul carers i've never heard ever uh mm. so yeah thanks for expanding that into in terms of my my context but the other ones i can kind of see um and i, f- I forgot about the physios as well with the chest um 
you know, the suction and stuff to get, which would be very critical, I think, for any of those patients. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, and, and in terms of the introduction, uh, where would you, I mean, uh, or you, I could use the word referral. I mean, where would that referral come from? Um, how, how does the family actually understand that they need palliative care at the moment and they need to speak to, you know, a speech therapist like yourself? Most often our referrals come from doctors. I would say 95% comes from doctors, maybe 5% from physio. Um, that's where most of our referrals. I think if it were to come from like a social worker, it usually will go via, they'll discuss it with the doctor and it comes back to us. Um, but normally the, our referrals come through the doctors. It's very rare that a patient is self-referred um, who is for palliation. They don't understand that they need us. Often even when we come, then they're like, what do you do? And <laughs> <laughs> The same like most times when we come, then they don't quite know what we do. Um, and we have to kind of teach them. But um, it's, I'm, I'm hoping that as we, because even with doctors, we're having to constantly remind them how and when to refer the, the specialists, the palliative care pediatricians and things like that, they know, but it's your general pediatricians, your general pediatric surgeons, your general physicians that are still treating palliative patients um, and maybe not being referred to the palliative teams that will then stay they won't end up referred or they end up referred very late and then the kind of support we can provide is very limiting um and they because they assume palliative care refer at the end mm. uh, so yeah i mean the referral process is a lot of work to be done but most majority it's from doctors okay and i think that, that i mean that's one of the major reasons for us doing this this type of show is is this becomes a resource now you know you can you can forward it to your doctor and say this is kind of how I work this is in my words and you know um this is why you need to consider it you know it's an hour of their time but instead of you every single time explaining the same story i mean i learned tons already and we're not even done you know with the conversation but in terms of weight what's in how amazing and profound it could be um and, you know, what, what level of support you actually give to your, you know, to the clients. I mean, just as you introduced it, you said it's not on the, you know, deathbed. It starts from diagnosis. And I think just changing that mindset already is going to be amazing, you know, in terms of where it advocacy, comes Advocacy, exactly. And advocacy is very high on my agenda. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I'm not trying to be the best speech therapist. I'm not trying to be number one. I want to really impact families' lives and I want to teach other speech therapists how to do this properly and how to really support um, the family and the patient and their quality of life the best that they can um, and teach doctors how to support families using the full team. Um, so I'm, that's why I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and on our side, we're very privileged to have you on as well. And if I just go down that thread now, because, I mean, it was an outline, but how would you do that? I mean, how would the advocacy work? Do you see that as, as, as you said, you know, you went for a conference and you learned more about that, but it's the same with disenfranchised grief or, you know, bereavement. I mean, no one wants to go for those things, you know, so yeah. it's almost like you, uh, you almost have to force feed them, you know, in yeah, some ways. Like I'm isolated in a room trying to like claw myself out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it is difficult. Um, I think in the past 
two years, I've done a lot of networking. I've really been putting myself in as many palliative settings as I can. So like um, I belong to all the palliative care societies. I'm on the board of one of the pediatric palliative care of Africa's. I'm on their board. So like surrounding myself by everybody who works in this field. And I re- going to the palliative care conference was so a big deal. So um, being there was very intimidating. Sometimes it's very intimidating working in this field as a speech therapist because to my knowledge, there are three of us trained um, in palliative care across the country. And um, in the, at this conference, Allied was very um, poorly represented. They were like, I, have, I know of only me as a speech therapist and about three or four physios. I think there were two OTs. Um, we were very, you know, and there was like 200 people. Mm. So it was really poorly represented. Um, but what was really nice about that conference was what made me, re- what I felt and I realized was when I got there, I knew a lot of people and I didn't expect that. And and I was like, okay, so I did something good over these two years, really like, mm. and I, I run around and I just scream speech therapy. Like anybody who will listen, I'm like speech therapy, speech therapy. <laughs> so I was happy to know that so many people actually knew me and were aware that I was a speech therapist and then the other thing unfortunately I mean I'm a clinician I'm not an academic but the other big thing is we need research so the more research there is the more I can say see like this is why we need to be here and there is maybe 0.01 percent of research in palliative care in a South African setting um, specific to speech therapy but even in general there's very little research so um, I'm having to like kind of with two ads and do a little bit of research now as well to just have proof to advocate um and then hopefully get those those um the, the research and make write journal articles get these things published so that people can see that this needs to be done and we need to be advocating i mean i wasn't taught most of these skills as a student so we need i don't, I don't even think there's enough speech therapists advocating for this so I'm trying to go back like as at the academic level and actually see what changes can be made there. But even that's difficult because um, when I looked into now doing my master's, there's no one to supervise me because there's no one trained in palliative care from a speech therapy perspective. So we're having to look for an international advisor to support me um, to do that. And I mean, I, I, I don't, I never wanted to go into academia, but I feel it's so important. And that entire conference, there was like spewing out, we don't have enough research. And these are like doctors talking about research that there is, like there's really no research for us. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think if if I can sit with the facts and be like, you see the change we can make in children's lives and even adults' lives, um, it will be a lot. I'll have a, like a stronger leg to stand on. So that's kind of like my current mission, my new kind of road for advocacy. I, I think I've been screaming in people's ears for, for two years straight. And I do think they're hearing me, but funding is a big problem. And as a speech therapist, they don't often pay for us and um, and the research, the proof. So that's mm-hmm. kind of what I'm, I'm fighting the funding and I'm fighting the, <laughs> the research. That's my current struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that sounds amazing, actually. And and uh, obviously very difficult. I mean, I can understand the academia part. And it's not that easy, I mean, just to get, I mean, it sounds easy enough, just get a journal article published, but it's not that easy to get accepted, to do the research, to do all of those things in order to get to that level. Um, and like you said, I mean, like 
you know, it's wearing different hats, it's doing different things. And, and at the same time, you obviously have to earn a living as well. And, yeah. you know, to sort out your patients and do that stuff. Um, but someone you know, said something very, um, very helpful to me because I, I was speaking to her and I said to her, like, I don't know if I can do a research master's. You know, it's just, I'm not into research that's not been my passion as I'm a clinician at heart and I can't imagine having I'll have to pull back on the amount of patients I see so I can do that and I just can't see myself doing that and she said something so interesting to me she said a lot of research is done by academics and that's why it's not relevant to us as clinicians the research we need is not being done we actually need more clinicians or in the field doing research so that it's relevant for us who are working and and that was kind of my tipping point on of like okay i need to do this and it was it was very helpful advice to me mm. actually i actually quite like that that thinking because if you look at lots of the tertiary hospitals in south africa i mean those are run by academics you know or people that have an academic background. I mean, I'm, I want to think of names now, but you know, like I'm probably going to get them wrong. But even Joburg General, you know, like uh, or Joburg Gen, um, you know. But but your 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 tertiary hospitals normally are like professors that are there, you know, from their medical you know schools and stuff like that. So I, I definitely buy that. Kind of makes sense. But if you get that, I mean, that's I think that's the ultimate. You know, where yeah. it's an academic doing research, but also in a clinical set setting. That's kind mm-hmm. of kind of my goal right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I mean, from what you're saying, I mean, I think it's a, it's quite an achievable one, especially if it's a if it's such a you know blind spot at the moment. You know, it seems seems to be. Um, and in terms of resources or or books or or anything that you you normally prescribe to your clients, is there anything that that kind of springs to mind, even other practitioners? Actually, I have a really nice list and I, I knew you would ask this question. So I have like a few that um, when I did my diploma in, in palliative medicine, I mean, it's a group of like-minded people all love reading about death. So <laughs> we just share books. And what was really nice was we were the first group that was really diverse. Um, it's usually a group of doctors, but the year that I was in, we were a lot of social workers with me, a speech therapist. There was a dietitian. We were very diverse. And we had someone who was a parent who had lost a child as well. So she was the first parent to be accepted into this diploma. It was such an interesting way to learn. And that's what we got. Maybe I must actually send you a list of these books. Um, the one is When Breath Becomes A by Paul Kalaniti. Really lovely book. Um, the Anatomy of Hope, How People Find Strength in the Face of Illness by Dr. Jerome Krupman, um, and Get Me to 21 uh, by, Ga- by Gabby Lowe. It's really nice. But I like the, most of these books are looking, one is looking at um, a doctor's perspective through these like palliative cases, and then the other two are parents who've lost children and it's I really find it so helpful to understand it from their perspective because I can see these patients until I'm dead but I will never know what it feels like not unless I lose a child I will never know so it's helpful to read these kind of books that um help me to understand what they're going through so I can try and be compassionate towards it as best I can um from a speech therapy perspective I there's a lot of um books on dysphagia which is swallowing difficulties but specifically dysphagia diets um there's tons on amazon and take a lot and i love those because sometimes my my creativity just can't get me there like i don't know how to get this 
food into this consistency so it's enjoyable and these books are organized in terms of consistency and then you can find what they can eat within that consistency like because you know we can only say butternut mash and squash so many times you know for softies so it gives you a really nice um it takes away the creativity difficult you know you can actually go through it and see what's fun to eat and things mm. and then something that was also really beneficial for me was patch um the organization patch released two books um one on intro to palliative care and another one on um perinatal palliative care big one that people don't know about um mm. those books were are massively massively helpful um very very affordable and um they were released through that through that organization so it's a it's a really good book and it's a good thing to buy because it goes back to the organization which focuses on training and research within palliative care so it's a really i love those mm, i mean like the, those are incredible resources i mean uh, that you mentioned um and we'll I'll definitely link to that as best as we can and if you can send us send us a list that'll be great as well we'll just add that to okay. the the resources um going dialing back a few steps and asking um in terms of anyone going through this and and I could ask it in two different ways you know maybe you know from a patient perspective as well as from the loved one's perspective is there anything that you would say based on your experience i mean how how could someone support that person better um i think in terms of supporting a patient the biggest piece of advice i can ever give is listen to them um listen to what they say listen to what they want um and listen from very early on and ask because it's going to reach a point where it's too late and they can't tell you what they want anymore and then you have to make that decision and that is very excuse me that's very very difficult um so ask what they want and listen um prioritize giving them what they want often when it, you have a loved one who is sick we want to keep them safe we want to keep them in hospital where it's safe you know all the wires everything that they said if they want something listen to them talk to the team and see what can we do to give them this um sometimes it's very difficult i won't lie like sometimes these kids and the adults ask for some things that i don't really know how to do but we try to be the best we can and stifling people's wishes is never the the way to go even though they don't mean it that way they never mean it in that way which is trying to take care of them but research has even shown not south african research but international <laughs> research has shown that often loved ones when they've after they've experienced loss and in the process of bereavement they experience a lot of regret for the way that they've done things um they wish that they'd listened they wish that they asked they um you know wish that they gave them a better death you know things like that and so very early on have the conversations they're very difficult conversations and i think that's kind of where the second part of how do you support like you know as a loved one and things you don't try not to do it alone um i think a lot of family what happens is you know they all try to support you nobody knows how to support and we tend to push them away welcome your family in even if they just sitting near you sitting around you whatever religious community you have we kind of always try to see what support structures do you have and how can we build it if you don't have it sometimes we have families coming in that don't have support structures then we try to find those for them how can we support that um but 
let your family in, even if it's difficult. Um, and then when it comes to like supporting loved ones, the the big thing of I think what you I don't know if you're meaning to say this, but siblings, it's very, very hard for a sibling having a, a child, having a, a brother or a sister with a life-limiting or life-threatening disease. It's very, very hard. And we mustn't forget to provide some sort of support to them. If it's spending one-on-one -on -one time with them, not only mom or dad, but auntie, uncle, grandma, grandpa, spending one-on-one -on -one time with them, having open conversations, not lying. Um, don't when you lie, you create trust issues. And then the child never knows what's happening and what's not happening. So we tell the truth. And if we don't know, we say we don't know. Um, but not to forget to give direct support to that child as well, because it's very, very hard on a, a child who's still developing, still also confused, and they they don't, their mommy and the dad is very busy. So we need to make sure that they're getting enough support. Um, in South Africa, we're very lucky to have um, across the past few years developed palliative networks across each province um, so the, we've created um, whatsapp groups in each province with a ton of basically when you find someone who's in palliative people are like oh you must be on this whatsapp and then on this whatsapp group is a range of different health professionals so that if this patient ends up by me and that I, I know they need to go year, year, and year. I can just message and find everyone that they need. So, um, you know, we're trying, the, the, the big issue now is to get people to ask so we can find. Um, but thankfully, those who work within the communities of palliative care, we can find the support they need. So please ask. The big thing is ask, ask, ask. And the other thing that I, I believe more than anything is I believe in a parent's gut. If a parent thinks there's something wrong with their child and someone tells them it isn't, get a second opinion, get everything checked out, never just, if they just listen to your heart and quickly send you home, I, I really trust a parent's gut. If, if I'm doing anything feeding related and the parent doesn't feel comfortable, I listen. Um, so I never want parents to feel their autonomy stripped as a parent. And I think that happens a lot when you know, you're used to taking care of your child and holding your child, and but all of a sudden the doctors take care of your child and you must sit back, you can't touch, you can't do this, you know. So for health professionals, listen to the parents and for parents, trust your gut. I really, really believe in that. Mm. So again, you know, said so nicely. I, I remember watching a movie, I'm going to get it wrong, but I mean, this child had a deformity, I think. So even it wasn't even life-threatening. But the parents spend so much of time in hospital with the child and, you know, the other sibling, I think it was a daughter, uh, was completely ignored. And there was issues that kind of came up later. And I think what you said on, and I'm very grateful that you touched on that point, which was the siblings. Um, yeah, and like it's difficult for them as well because they have their own lives to live. And unfortunately, you know, it's not even just about the sick person, you know, sick person or sick family member. It's about them as well. And I think trying to, uh, it must be really difficult. I mean, it's so easy to say it now, but having all of those hats and taking care of everyone. And, and still like working. Yeah, hmm. There's still money to pay for all these things. It's exactly. Um, we didn't touch on that, but it'll be an interesting point. Is that, I mean, one is actually meeting amazing people like yourself, but do you find, I mean, is it easy enough for most people to afford this type of care? Is it covered by medical aid? Um or health insurance? It's a complicated question. <laughs> <laughs> Recently, um, 
in terms of medical aid, they did start a fund um, like Discovery and a few have started funds that do cover palliative care, which is a good thing. But um, in terms of allied health, not only speech therapy, physio, OT, they don't always include us or they only include us at the end of life, which um, is not what palliative care is. So that makes it very tricky. Um, and the the difficult thing is that we don't know how long this journey is going to be. It could be a few days, months, weeks, years. We really don't know how long the journey is going to be. And sometimes the medical aids do run out, even with the best medical aid. Um, I had a kid who was diagnosed at like 11 months and passed away just before two. Um, so, I mean, their medical aid was ran out. Um, he lived in hospital for those few months and um so that's when you start paying out of pocket even in for some government things if you you know it works on a triage so if you make an income you have to pay something towards the hospital and that can be very tricky um so like it's it's a it's an expensive process and it's hard because you don't want to be thinking about the money in that case and I think it's even it's hard for us as well as health professionals because we don't want to have to ask for money in in that kind of setting so I'm trying to do a lot of advocating again for like um more funding from medical aids and things to actually cover it we also have like organizations like Pete's Balia in Cape Town and there's the Sunflower House in Joe in KZN, I think. Um that provide it's an NGO that provides palliative care, um, pediatric palliative care. And so that's, you know, at least we've got some NGOs available as well that provide that for patients. But um it can be a very, a very tricky thing. It's it's navigating it is hard, especially in the allied field where most I, I think you know to play devil's advocate um if if my own professionals if speech therapists don't even know what we do how can I expect all the medical aids and everything so like I don't mind doing the work but um I really hope that there's a change because having to fight about money is the last thing that I think anyone wants to do I mean we sat at um memorial service where they had to ask for funding because they were so deep in debt um and their kid had died but they were still sitting so deep in debt um and they had medical aid so it's it's a very difficult concept that needs a lot of change um but i think that there are lots of people also fighting that because i think we have unfortunately we need to be paid because how else can we keep doing this it's the same thing even like um for my masters like i'm they're hoping to find funding <laughs> um and that's why a lot of people don't do research because a lot of these universities are so expensive um so you know there's a lot of um but like barriers to care because of money mm. um so it's it's unfortunate but we're fighting it <laughs> yeah, I know. I had to ask that question because, I mean, you know, does it come out of your normal benefits? Does it come? Because, I mean, I, I think if it's oncology as an example, I mean, oncology has their own benefit. And but again, with the medical aid, if you if you or health insurance, if you didn't have that cover, you know, you're not going to have it. And so I was interested to see yes, how that works. Special benefits have caps. We don't realize it because most of us don't reach like our cancer cap, you know, mm. um, but they've got caps to it and if you seek for long enough 
if you happen to not die within their cap, you have to pay. Mm. Um, and I mean, ventilators aren't cheap. Doctor's visits aren't cheap. Chemo is not cheap. So these things all kind of add up. Mm. But I mean, they, uh, it typically does. There is a special palliative care benefit that a lot of medical aids have that things can come out of, but not always including the different allied health. And definitely not your auxiliary services like music therapy, aromatherapy, um, you know, so your chances are getting access to that. And then you have to look at, is that fair? And what quality of care are you? If you have the money, you get the care. Mm. Is that fair? Yeah, it always comes... Always seems to come back to that, hey. And and I think if we don't prioritize it, we don't get amazing people like yourself, passionate and 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 empowered to be able to provide the care that you you know you you know you want to. Um, so yeah, it's very yeah, it's very difficult. I think um, we didn't cover the stigma, but is do you find from a stigma point of view? And when I say stigma, I mean like. Um, you know, people outside the family, maybe, you know, maybe uh, you know, like helping them understand the process that the family is going through, um, maybe even within the family. Do you find anything that comes up within that? I think the stigma is around the whole concept of palliative care. So it's often tricky to explain to parents how I'm the speech therapist part of the palliative team. They're like, palliative, is you going to die tomorrow? Like, we don't need you. We're not ready for you, you know. So there's the stigma attached to the actual label of palliative care and having to explain to them, like, I never go in starting saying the word palliative. I'd first, you know, explain to them where I'm from, what this is, what is palliative care, then we'll go into it. Because when the minute they hear that, it's like, why you, you know, you don't need to come yet. So that's that's a big stigma in in that we see with with families, um, and with with parents, with loved ones, everyone we see the the stigma around the, the name palliative care. I think even um if doctors become a bit attached to patients and they don't need the palliative team, actually you do. You do need the team, and it doesn't mean that you're writing this patient's death certificate. It means you prioritizing this patient's quality of life and their comfort. And you are, you know how they say, um, prepare for the worst, plan, um, hope for the best. Mm -hmm. We can still have, we still have hope. Palliative care doesn't take away your hope, but it means we have realistic hope. And we make sure that even though we've got that hope, we're still making sure that they're comfortable and they've got what they want. So yeah, the, the stigma is more around the actual name around palliative care. Mm. How would you normally introduce it to a, to a parent without using the word palliative care? So normally, I won't lie, I'm not often the first port of call. By the time they've reached me, they've probably heard the term. Okay. Um, but if they haven't, I've always got go first with asking them, tell me what you understand about your child or your loved one. Tell me what you know is happening. And I start there because often you don't want to give information that they've gotten a lot or give information that they maybe shouldn't be getting yet. So always have them tell me everything first, and then I get a good idea of where they are. Because if the patient, if they've not maybe told them that the child has cancer yet, then I'm like, okay, something's happened here, you know. So I'm not going to jump in and just like spare. Always have them first tell me what's happening. Then I'll take that and kind of like it down with that. Okay, so you know that they've been diagnosed with ABC. That means that this, that, and that might happen. This is what's going to happen over time. This is what we can expect. My job is to help you with this and this. And then like kind of bold from there. 
and then I bring in the concept. But it always depends on how it goes. Sometimes I might have to mention it in the next session, but I do think it's helpful for them to be aware of the concept and, and know that this is palliative care so they can advocate for the next person and the next person and the next person and know that next time, if they have a, a family member or friend who has a child that's sick, they can say, you should get a palliative team. It doesn't mean that the child's going to die tomorrow. Palliative care isn't a death certificate. Um, so I do think it's important that we mention that the, the term, but I think we need to be sensitive about when we mention it. Mm. Yeah, Um I like that. I like that as a strategy as well. I think that works in many scenarios um, as in asking first, you know, what, what do you think um, or what's your understanding before uh, assuming and just going on your own, you know, tangent. Yeah. <laughs> um, my second last question, and then I think we can start wrapping up. This was an absolutely amazing discussion, but are there any ethical considerations that spring to mind, you know, around Ooh, palliative okay. care? <laughs> or is that a completely different topic? Yeah, that's a whole, like, you're going to, you have to give it for another hour if you want to wow. talk about it. <laughs> I mean, ethics and palliative care are like best friends. They work alongside each other. There's, we have to, in like the diploma and things, ethics is like such a big component of what we have to learn, how to do ethical decision-making and things. Um, I don't have it all enough. I can maybe tell you a little bit as a speech therapist. Um, the biggest ethics we come into, we, the, the biggest part of ethics that we involved in is withdrawal of feeds. So when to start withdrawing feeds is a very complex, difficult, because the patient will die when we start to withdraw feeds. So we need to be able to look at um, what is, where are we in the disease trajectory? What are the signs and symptoms we're seeing of this patient right now? You know, look at all your um, your concepts around ethics to this patient's um, beneficence, non-maleficence, you know, all your concepts of, of ethics um, and work within the team, discussing with the team what does each member think before you withdraw feeds. But that's the one, the, the, the conversation that we involved in the most with regards to ethics. But there is so much more when it comes to, to palliative care that I feel like I end up pushing my nose into <laughs> because um, so many people just, a lot of health professions are trained in this field. So sometimes I see these things happen and I'm like, this is so unethical because we're not supposed to hasten or sustain death. We don't want to make this process longer. You know, there are times when a patient shouldn't be ventilated. You're making it worse. Like you shouldn't ventilate a patient. You shouldn't resus a patient. You shouldn't push feeds on this patient or hydrate the patient. So you should put the patient on morphine. You know, so there's a lot of... So many ethical dilemmas that I mean, you'd, I'd need to stay for another whole hour to to talk <laughs> about it. I, I know, um, but but it's it opens your eyes to a lot of other things when you start to discuss things on ethics. Um, that there's a lot. Everything, everything in health has an ethical dilemma. Everything, every mm. decision. Yeah, but are you giving me a, a, an idea in terms of? I think there's there's a there's definitely a space for talking from a patient view how they could almost ensure that their wishes are taken care of without putting healthcare practitioners in an ethical dilemma. I think there's something about that that, you know, maybe we can pick up as another topic because I think that's quite critical. People don't just don't know how to communicate that 
and what to communicate. So that's actually called an advanced care plan. So um, for palliative patients, when they diagnose, we're supposed to develop an advanced care plan that's developed by all the treating health professionals that has all of their diagnoses, um, everything that they've struggled, their surgeries, everything, and then all their symptoms and their total pain. So it's not only looking at their pain in terms of physical, but it looks at physical, spiritual, emotional, um, all your psychosocial pain as well, and what features they present with and what how to treat each one. And then you ask the patient, what do they want in this circumstance? What do they want in this circumstance? So you do that at the point of diagnosis when a patient can still do that. And then in an ideal world, that advanced care plan needs to be kept by with the with the family in case um, the ambulance comes, with the teacher in case something happens at school, um, at the hospital that they go to in the emergency room, in case they end up there. The advanced care plan must be readily available um, for all treating clinicians so that people know I'm not going to reassess this kid. And you go through it with the parents. So when it happens with the parent, they know nobody is going to resuscitate my baby. This this is what's supposed to happen. I'm okay with this. It's hard. It's difficult. But this is what's supposed to happen. And they know that. So everyone is involved in the advanced care plan. Okay. But who would the custodian be? Who would be the one that drives that effort to get the plan done? It's normally the um the treating pediatric the like the palliative care doctor will, okay. will push for that yeah okay. sometimes a social worker but normally the social worker will request one and then the, the the doctor would do it yeah okay I've never heard that before and it's actually so so amazing you know to hear it um do you, would you want to start wrapping up at uh, I always ask this question as well is there anything obviously you know some of the topics that come across our our you know, desk is quite, quite interesting. And this one definitely being one of those. Is there anything that you thought I should have asked you that, that I didn't? Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I think you asked really good questions. I think the one thing that would be beneficial maybe is just in terms of um, what courses I had to do to be able to um, practice in this field. But hmm. otherwise I asked everything okay that sounds amazing i think with that one uh, we will we we do we are doing the molding private practice show so we'll do that and we'll cover your journey in terms of being a speech therapist and how you specialized in palliative care um so i'll i'll pick that up there and if anyone's listening you know they can obviously hear you there as well um but Tanya, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much for your powerful messaging and how you articulate things. It it was absolutely fascinating hearing you talk about it. I'm so glad. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode. Music.